each of us are connected to food systems. So you and I have a vested interest in understanding its workings, challenges, and potential solutions. In my role at Google, one of my responsibilities is to ask, what are the impacts of our food choices? Not just on our individual health and well-being, but also on the food systems we are a part of, our producers, our suppliers, society, and the planet. I believe we all have a responsibility to ask big questions like this one. The answers can open a world of possibility. I invite you to join me in meeting the leaders who have dared to step up to answer these bigger questions to create a better food future for us all. This is Food Lab Talk. Thanks for joining me for another Food Lab Talk. I am Michael Bucker. If you're listening to this podcast, you may already have familiarity with the growing problem of food waste. It is estimated that 35% of food in the US is unsold or uneaten, and most of that goes to waste. This is a big problem for food security and environmental sustainability. If food waste were a country, it would be the third highest emitter of greenhouse gases. So, what can we do about it? Food waste is a big systemic challenge that will take an army of people thinking about what they can do within their sphere of influence. This season of Food Lab Talk, I am excited to pass the mic to some of the individuals within this army to share what they are doing to support a system-wide effort to reduce food loss and waste. Our season begins with Dana Gunders, the Executive Director of Refat, a national nonprofit advancing data-driven solutions to end food loss and waste. I also think it is just the dumbest problem out there and one that is so solvable. You know, I think we look at climate change and it feels so big and so daunting, but wasting less food is not rocket science, right? It's something we can all do. We, we have control over and it feels very much within our reach. And I think that helps keep me motivated. Deemed the woman who helped start the waste-free movement by Consumer Reports, Dana helps train, inspire, and strategize around food waste reduction. In 2012, Dana authored the report, Wasted, How America is Losing Up to 40% of Its Food from Farm to Fork to Landfill, that sparked a national dialogue about food waste. On today's episode, you'll hear about why tackling food waste requires a full supply chain view what Dana views as the biggest barriers and opportunities, and how solving for waste will impact our global food system. Here's my interview with Refet's Dana Gunders. Dana, thanks for joining me today. Could you start by introducing yourself and tell us a little bit more about your background and what you're doing today? Of course, it's wonderful to be here with you, Michael. Thank you so much for the invitation. So my name is Dana Gunders. I'm the executive director at Refed. We are a national nonprofit that is entirely dedicated to reducing the amount of food that goes to waste around the U.S. And I've actually been working on 
this issue for over a decade now. I got into it uh, when I was working on a sustainable agriculture project and I was put in charge of the waste group that was meant to look at like irrigation piping and what to do with that on farms. And instead, I started stumbling across these numbers of how much food was going to waste. And I would go back to these farmers and these, you know, big canning companies and say, hey, wait a minute, this is saying that 40% of our food never gets eaten. Is that sound about right to you? And they would stop and go, hmm, yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. And very nonchalantly. And I went, wait a minute, if this is the case, why is no one going crazy about it? You know, why is everyone not talking about it? And that really lit a fire for me. Um, and I wound up publishing a paper on it back in 2012 that in some ways kind of broke the story around the US of how much food was going to waste. And um, I've actually been working on the topic ever since. Tell me a little bit about the paper in 2012. And I think there is a book in between as well to your journeys to refat. Sure. Well, you know, it took a couple of years really to build a program out. I was working at the Natural Resources Defense Council, NRDC at the time, and wound up building out a program there with a project on cities that lives on today. And then also a, a project to really reach out to consumers. And, and we kicked off a whole ad campaign with the ad council called Save the Food. And I also wrote a book while there, which was called The Waste-Free Kitchen Handbook. And what I found was that, you know, nobody wakes up wanting to waste food, right? And it just is sort of something that happens when you look in your fridge and go, oh, no, too late for that one, right? And that you really need to build strategies for people to think about before the waste happens, because once the waste happens, it's too late. The topic really resonates with people, but they're not thinking about it at the right time. And that's really what led me to write the Waste-Free Kitchen Handbook and really try to work towards affecting consumers because people really light up when you talk to them about it. But again, you got to get them to think about it at the right time. So I, I was there for quite some time. Um, while I was there, I ran into a wonderful man named Jesse Fink, who happened to be the founder of Priceline. He had sold it and had become an impact investor. And he became really interested in this topic of food waste and was supporting my work at NRDC on it. And through conversations with him and his team, you know, we started to talk about this idea of a project to really start to quantify the solutions. Because it wasn't hard to convince people there was a problem here, but they didn't necessarily know what to do about it. And that actually led to Jesse and, and his team coming out with a report in 2016 that was called the Refed Roadmap. And it was an attempt to quantify how well different solutions worked. So they looked at 27 different solutions and looked at how much food is saved when you do those things and how much do they cost to implement and how much might they save or make in money and what's the ultimate financial benefit. That report got a lot of traction and ultimately led to Refed becoming an organization of its own. And I was involved, you know, I was on the steering committee, I was on the board when it became a 501c3, and I stepped in as the executive director in late 2019. Got it. So you've got actually an amazing 10 years in the space. So one of those interesting questions for you, Dana, when you look back at your first 10 years in this space, what is different for you today than when you started 10 years ago on it? Where has progress been made? 
where do you believe we're still basically at square one? How do you look back at the first 10 years? It's a great question. I think 10 years ago, food waste was not part of the vernacular around what a sustainable food system looks like. It wasn't even part of the discussion. And now you see that it is part of every major sustainable food kind of vision that's out there. It's one pillar of that. And I think that on its own has been a really important point of progress. What's a little bit more frustrating is that we don't have the numbers to show actual progress very well, right? And so, you know, I can point to indicators of progress. So there are over 200 global food companies out there who have made a commitment to reduce their food waste by 50% by 2030. You know, you can look at individual company reports and see that companies actually are making progress on this. The US, since I started working on this, has introduced a national goal. The UN has introduced an international goal on this. You know, people are thinking about it. People are talking about it. We are are seeing companies adopting solutions. But at the same time, we don't have the ability to really track progress. And so we can't look at the numbers and get that vindication that yes, what we're doing is working, because it's so difficult to really know. With all of that said, Dana, what sustains you in your work? So what is it that ultimately brings you back to Refat tomorrow morning to continue to keep going? One thing I love about Refat is just how varied it is. You know, we really sit at the center of this whole food waste issue. And so we hear from so many different types of people, everything from you know, a school teacher who wants to start teaching something in their classroom to the White House, you know, and to major global food companies. And so every day is kind of a new journey in terms of what email or call I'm going to get from some new person that's interested in it. And it seems to keep one-upping itself and getting more and more exciting as time goes on. And so I can feel the momentum continuing to build on the topic. And I think that that's really what keeps my energy up is that just when I feel like, oh, gosh, is anything really happening? <laughs> you know, some newer, bigger player steps in and, and wants to do something on the issue. I also think it is just the dumbest problem out there and one that is so solvable. You know, I think we look at climate change and it feels so big and so daunting. But wasting less food is not rocket science, right? It's something we can all do. We, we have control over and it feels very much within our reach. And I think that helps keep me motivated as well. It also is really interesting. You know, people talk about it as if it's one issue, but it's really not. You know, wasting less food on a farm that, you know, grows 10,000 acres of tomatoes is a very different problem than having less food go to waste in our homes or in a restaurant where there are too many potatoes on the breakfast platter, right? So it's really a complex set of inefficiencies and design challenges throughout the food system that we need to address. The other thing that keeps me really excited about working on the issue of food waste is that more and more brilliant minds are coming to look at it. And I think when I started working on this, I really felt like this lone warrior on the topic. And now I feel like there is an army of smart people with incredible experience starting to think about what they can do in their sphere of influence. And that has 
just this ripple effect that is so exciting to me. Thanks for sharing all of that. Can you tell us a little bit more about how Refat is actually dealing with that? So are there, one, from who's actually part of the organization, and then two, what are the type of solutions Refat is working on? So we really see ourselves as a field catalyst organization trying to advance the whole movement around wasting less food. And the way we do that is primarily through four different pillars. The first is providing data and insights on the issue. So we host an incredible interactive website that has more information on this topic than anyone could absorb in one sitting. And you can click around and you can dive in and really understand why it's happening, but also what are the solutions and how well do they work? We have 42 different solutions analyzed on our website. Then you can go and read a fact sheet about each of them. You can find different organizations that are providing those solutions. We have 1,500 organizations in our solution provider directory. You can look at the investments in the space and track those, as well as the different policies in different states. So we are trying to provide a wealth of information so that people can, you know, hear about food waste on the radio when they've never heard about it before, come to our site and really learn about it, find where they can plug in and what solutions are relevant to them, and then take that step of actually going to do due diligence on those solutions. The second pillar of work for us is in bringing more capital into the space to promote innovation. And so we we host a circle of foundations and investors, a funder circle, we call it, to exchange ideas. We circulate any uh, funding opportunities to them. We, um, you know, provide networking and educational opportunities as well. We also have kicked off our own grant fund because we found that there are a lot of capital providers who want to put money into this issue, but don't necessarily know it very well or know all of the smaller organizations on the ground that are working on it. And so we've kind of become that intermediary to fund a lot of those small, exciting initiatives that are happening and do it through bigger work. And in fact, Google was our anchor funder into that grant fund. We just had our first open call for it. We got 280 submissions. We got $99 million worth of requests. Though we won't be passing out nearly that much money on our first call someday, maybe. So really trying to catalyze more capital into the space. And then we work to really build out that ecosystem and mobilize people and connect them. And we call that collective impact. And so we host an annual summit on the issue. We host a network of over a thousand, we call them practitioners who are working on the issue in some way. And through that, we've started to build out our fourth pillar, which is our business initiatives. Because so many businesses come to us and say, hey, you know, we are a convenience store company with 500 convenience stores. We want to start working on this. What do we do? And here we are refed. We are, we're a small nonprofit. We have 20 employees. So we don't have the bandwidth to totally handhold every company that wants to be working on this, but we do have a ton of expertise and we're sitting on a lot of analysis. And so we're building out tools to really leverage our information, our expertise, our analysis, and hand that to people in a way that can help shortcut the learning curve for them. So Dana, if I hear you correctly, you've got more data and more insights than anybody would really need in order to progress. We're looking for more capital. So it feels to me that the problem is known, the solutions are there. So what is stopping us? So if you think about the great work to be done, 
if you had your magic wand, where would you point it to? It's a great question. I think there are probably two barriers that are very much overcomable, but are still there. The first is just priority. While we know what needs to be done, it's not necessarily priority. And that's true for a sustainability manager in a food company who has, you know, 30 different issues coming their way from sustainable seafood to plastics to to rainforest, right? And then there's food waste. And typically those programs are understaffed and there's just not the bandwidth to take this on. The second, and this is more on the capital side, is knowing what to invest in. So I think there are a lot of promising projects out there. But when both investors and foundations come to this issue, they get very excited. They want to do something. And then I see that they sometimes struggle to figure out exactly where to put their money. And I don't know that it's that there's a lack of options, but I think it's that there's a lack of proven options. And, you know, the tolerance for risk maybe is lower than the risk that's there. So there's kind of a lot of early stage efforts for this issue. And a lot of times these days, the money is coming from a climate perspective and they're putting it kind of side by side with other potential investments that are much more clear cut and have more of a substitution effect. And I think that's one of the challenges. You know, are you going to put your money into something that, you know, is a technical assistance program that could help evolve business practices? Or are you going to put it into building some chargers somewhere for EV cars that has a very clear proven outcome? Another area to dig a little deeper into, and it might be just me and my own biases, is when we talk about food losses and waste, almost by default, we start to talk about fruits vegetables, produce. But what about other categories, dairy, proteins? Are the challenges of the same skill over there and similar, or is it truly all about fruits and vegetables? To be honest, I think this is a really important place to bring the conversation because we don't have great vision into some of the loss at production level um, for animal products. And of course, they're so important to all of these future food conversations. In general, there is a pretty high level of efficiency when it comes to, you know, animal slaughter and, and you know, how the meatpacking houses are using. Sometimes they'll say everything but the squeal, but not all of it's going to food, right? And so part of what I wonder is what is the potential to actually have more of that product go into the food system? There is one case study with Smithfield, a large meat processor, where someone went in and found a way to have 30% of what was going to rendering actually stay within the food system. So I think there's more opportunity there than we think there is to um, maintain more of that product as food. Seafood is another really interesting place to look. And it's complicated. It's not a straightforward conversation because one of the big opportunities in seafood is around bycatch. That's fish that are caught unintentionally as part of fishing for a different species. And, you know, there's pros and cons because we don't want to incentivize that those fish be caught. And there's, you know, all sorts of regulations. It's a complicated area, but I think an important one to continue to look at around bycatch. And then 
Another opportunity area is in how we are using food. So for instance, if we purchased all our fish frozen, we would have a lot less loss in the seafood supply chain. But this push to have fresh fish available in the retail store, which often is not fresh, it's actually frozen and then thawed, is actually leading to quite a bit of loss. So um, I think it's really important to start to dive into those other sectors and start to understand each one individually, because it's always specific, not only to the sector, but really down to the individual food product oftentimes. Yeah. And going back to the data, what I've always found is that whatever gets measured gets either done or gets manipulated. So if we set waste reduction goals, it's magically, it gets partially reduced because people are doing the right things, but partially potentially as well, hypothetically speaking, not everything gets measured anymore. So how do you truly track progress made in a way that is somewhat verifiable and where it doesn't become just cleaning up the data. My goodness, we could totally geek out on this. Um, I think when you think about what it means to measure food waste, it's really challenging, right? I, I have huge envy of the energy industry because it feels very straightforward to measure electricity. But with food, you know, do we have scales and cameras on every bin that could be an option someday. Do we look at it more as a uh, equation of how much we bought versus how much we sold and try to take the difference there, which involves a lot of conversions and gets challenging in those conversions. Um, so there, there really is no like perfect way to do it right now. And to your point, there's a lot of gaming, even of the best systems that are out there. So there's there's one system that you know really well, Michael, which is called Lean Path, where um, you know, they're having people in institutional kitchens, every time they throw food out, they have to weigh it and and say what it is and why it's getting thrown out before they throw it out. Well, that's great, but how do you know how much got put in the bin without throwing it out. And there's, you know, you can weigh the bin and and compare things, but how much energy do you want to put and time into figuring out if people are gaming the system? Ultimately, I think it's important to think about the biggest of pictures here. And that is, why do we care about this issue, right? We care about it because we are looking ahead towards a future in 2050 where we are going to have a bigger population that is likely eating more animal products. And the UN estimates that we will need about 50% more food than than we have today. And how are we going to meet that need? Are we going to grow, produce more food and send it through the supply chain? Or are we gonna use some of the food that we're already growing and not actually using today? And when you think of it from that perspective, the most important thing to measure is how much food are you buying, right? per person, per person served or something like that, because that's really the demand signal that we're creating. Now, yes, it is important to get it out of the landfills and into compost because there's methane being created in landfills. And, you know, we can avoid that by sending it to compost or animal feed. I mean, it's great to look at what we can do with it. But what's most important is that we are buying what we need and not too much more. And so if you are effective at reducing your waste, you're purchasing per cover or per person or per hospital bed or whatever your measure is should ultimately go down. So I think that is something that we could start looking at 
as an ultimate measure of success. Yeah. So Dana, we've talked for quite a bit about the data, the problem, the opportunities. But how do you get people to act? So what is it that you find is actually making people do stuff and organizations do stuff? Today, what we're seeing is that one of the most powerful motivators is the climate impact of food waste. Food waste has a larger climate footprint than the entire aviation industry. And I think it's not uh, intuitive as to why, but that's really for three main reasons. The first is that when food goes to landfills, it produces methane as it rots, which is a powerful greenhouse gas that acts you know, more potently in the short term. The second is that it takes a huge amount of resources and energy to grow, harvest, cool, transport, store, cook food and get it to our tables. And that actually has an even larger footprint than um, what happens from landfills. And the third is that it takes a lot of land to grow food. And that land pressure is actually one of the key drivers of deforestation and other conversion of native ecosystems, even grasslands here in the US. And when you take away those lands, that can have a huge climate impact as well. Along with that, there's also impacts to biodiversity. One recent paper estimated that um, biodiversity loss could be reduced by 17% by cutting our food loss and waste in half. And that is really bringing a lot of people to look at it as something they can do in their own lives that makes a difference and something that they can do in their businesses as well. And even from a a very practical standpoint of the ESG reporting and climate reporting that we're seeing maybe required from the SEC that for food companies, you know, can reducing the amount of food that goes to waste actually play a role in what they're needing to report there and their metrics and figures. So I think that's a huge motivating factor. Food prices rising right now are also bringing a lot of attention to the issue. I have never talked to so many reporters as I have in the last few months with these prices rising because it's it's now stretching your food budget, whether you are a restaurant or you're an individual, has become much more front of mind. And so we're seeing that drive a lot of interest in the topic as well. And the other thing that's doing is pushing more people into food insecurity. And between the pandemic and now food prices, we have a a huge food insecurity problem. And I think there's more awareness around that. And when people hear that food is going to waste alongside that food insecurity, it really feels like a missed opportunity. Yeah. And then if you are a skeptic, the question that you could pose, what is the impact of me as an individual or as an individual family buying a little less in the broader scheme of things? Does it really make a difference? How would you respond to a skeptic like that one? Well, what I can tell you is that we in our homes in the US make up the largest portion of food going to waste over 40% of all the food that goes to waste coming from households. So if we don't start doing something about it, we will never make a dent in the biggest part of the pie. And it's not just in our homes that's the problem, right? We are out eating food at restaurants. We are getting takeout 
we are organizing events, you know, we are in the office getting lunches and, and, and all of that. And so um, even beyond our, our homes, we're able to have an, an impact. One of the biggest causes of food going to waste out there is actually food that's been sold in restaurants, but not eaten. So we call it plate waste. You know, it's that quarter of a sandwich that you don't finish and you don't take home. So I think one really easy thing we can start doing is just making sure to order wisely, ask how big the portion is, but also then take those leftovers home and, and remember to eat them. Got it. Well, you now look into the future. You come across as a very optimistic individual. So what excites you the most about what is happening in the food reduction space? Where do you see the broadest opportunities? You know, one really exciting thing that happened this year is that the White House announced a commitment to food loss and waste as one of the six commitments that came out of the North America Leaders Summit, right alongside like building EV infrastructure and ocean conservation. That was, I would say, an extremely exciting and proud moment for me because it felt like, wow, this is really starting to be seen as the opportunity that it is. You know, for me, it's always felt like this enormous opportunity that we are just um, leaving on the table. And so I'm really excited by the fact that people are starting to see it for that. I'm also thrilled to see some of the ESG reports that are starting to come out of companies showing that they are actually making progress. And some of the case studies, you know, we just did a, a whole set of case studies and, you know, Sprouts, they have reduced the amount of surplus food they generate by 9% in the last two years. And they've increased the amount they're donating by, oh goodness, I don't have the number, but a huge portion of that. I can't tell you progress at the country level, but I can point to so many case studies of it at the anecdotal level. And I think that's really exciting and it's just going to build more and more momentum on itself. That's promising. One of my last couple of questions for you, Dana, is, is there anything I haven't asked you today that you would like to share with our listeners? Well, you haven't asked me the last thing I threw out. And I will tell you that my nemesis in life is cilantro because cilantro, <laughs> I love it. And I am so, I don't like it dried. I don't like it frozen. I just like it fresh. And in the winter when I can't grow it, I am so challenged to use a whole bunch of it. So I'll take any cilantro um, recommendations and recipes from listeners as well, please. <laughs> I did not expect that question. Dana, thank you so much for spending time with me today and good luck to you and the organization in the amazing efforts that you are leading. Thank you. Thank you so much, Michael. It's been a great to speak with you. As we began planning for this season of Food Lab Talk, it felt natural that we begin our journey with Dana's story. During our conversation, she offered a thoughtful perspective on the complexities of the food system and an optimism for what the future holds. As she noted, refat is a catalyst to advance this movement and this episode is, in a sense, a catalyst for our season. Make sure to check out the show notes for links to learn more about refat, including the catalytic grant fund. Now that you've heard a bit more about the data, problems and most importantly opportunities, 
I am excited to introduce you to the brilliant minds coming together on this issue. If you liked what you heard today, you won't want to miss the rest of my conversation this season. Subscribe to the podcast at foodlaptop.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts to be notified when new episodes go live. As we close, I want to thank you for today's episode and invite you to pursue your own bold vision and inspiring actions toward a better food system. See you next time.